Hello and welcome to Sobriety Elevated, the podcast that is committed to empowering you in your recovery and elevating your sobriety. Join us now for the next episode. We hope you create an incredible experience. Let's get the show started. And welcome to another exciting episode of Sobriety Elevated. My name is Jim Pakonan. I am here with my incredible co-host, Kevin Thole. And today we have a guest. I'm going to let Josh introduce himself. Josh works in a recovery center. We actually met, how long ago did we meet, Josh? It had to have been about 10 years, eight years? Yeah, close to that. Maybe a little bit less, but yeah, pretty close to 10 years. Tell our listeners who you are, what you do, because it's the what you do that I think we're going to talk about today. You were a fascinating man when I knew you back then, and you're now an incredibly fascinating individual. Thank you so much, Jim. I guess I should start with the fact that I'm in recovery. I've been sober for 12 years, a little over 12 years. I work at, like you said, a recovery center, and currently my position is uh, the alumni coordinator. And so what I do in that position mostly is follow up with people after they've graduated treatment and continue to support them and check in and see how they're doing and what they're doing to strengthen their recovery after the treatment experience. Uh, and then in my my own personal recovery, we mentioned that we were going to talk about meditation a lot, and that's been a really, really strong element in my recovery, possibly the strongest element. And you're also a Zen Buddhist. That's right. Yeah, I am a member of the Tipian Zen Buddhist order, which was established by Master Thich Nhat Hanh. I'm interested to hear about this. Um, you know, everybody has heard my story a lot, knows that I'm a Christian, and uh, sometimes things like Buddhists and uh, meditation can make us uncomfortable. But what I've really found, especially through my recovery journey, is like, you know, we can take some good from pretty much anything and everything both ways. I mean, you know, and so for me, meditation was so scary uh, when they said it in treatment because I like thought it was some like weird, like satanic thing you did or what. And what I've learned is it's just, <laughs> it's such an incredible way to use breathing to kind of center me really to slow my crazy brain down and to get in the present moment. And I, I'm excited to hear how like getting the, to that next level, how you've done that, Josh, and kind of what that looks like for you. For me, again, it's still a little difficult to sit there quietly for a very, very long time. You mentioned that perceived conflict between Christianity or maybe some other faiths and Buddhist practice. I think that's a, something that I might touch on a little bit because I kind of have a personal relationship with that. Before I got really bad into my use, I had a falling out with my mother over religious ideas and she's she's a christian part of my healing process was to go back and develop a healthy positive relationship to my christian upbringing as i was exploring buddhism and meditation practice i went to a few centers where people were really 
apt to point out the differences between Buddhism and Christianity or Buddhism and other faiths. I found that it was really important for me to find a place that bridged the gap where there was communication and harmony between Christianity and Buddhism. And that's really what led me into the order that I joined was Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a book called Living Buddha, Living Christ. By reading that book and looking at his relationship that he had developed to Christianity and his take on it and how he was very welcoming to that, it was a really fundamental thing for me to be able to heal that relationship with my mother and with my religious upbringing and to forgive the errors that were there and bring greater appreciation to the really positive qualities that still nurture me spiritually from that upbringing. That's fascinating. Can you speak more to what, not what's actually in the book, but what you got out of the book that empowers you not only as a Buddhist, but I also as a Christian? Because you do you call yourself both a Buddhist and a Christian? I would say that I don't identify as a Christian, but I do say that I admire and appreciate and practice the teachings in the New Testament. But I think that there's some doctrinal perspectives that are common to Christianity that I don't align with. I would say if I were to make claims on being a Christian or identifying as a Christian that some Christians might take issue with that and think that I'm not following in line with some of the core tenets. I do really appreciate and continue to learn from a lot of the teachings like the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. Awesome. I, I, one thing that I want to point out that I think is cool about recovery is we, we don't all have to believe the exact same thing to recover. A big thing in the, in the 12 steps and, and people that are listening to this that know me really well, this may make them very uncomfortable, but you know, we say that you go to the God of your own understanding and that you have a higher power. And that's very uncomfortable for, for people, but I've seen so many people where it starts there and then their spiritual life develops. So many people have found Christianity that way. People have found different paths and things like that to recovery. And everybody pretty much knows what I believe and, and where I believe at. The unity that you can have with other people, because we're all fighting the same battle, where we don't have to agree on every every little thing. Like I'm sure that we all three of us on this podcast disagree on certain things, but the one thing that we can agree on for sure is that recovery for us is extremely important in our lives and is one of the reasons why we're here. So I've got a question for you, for you, Josh. So let's say somebody's out there and they're they're thinking, you know what, this meditation, you know, they they read the 12 steps or whatever and they see prayer and meditation and they're like, okay, what does that even mean? How would you kind of yeah. describe that? And then after you describe that, like how would you kind of give maybe a couple tips on how to get started into it or or different ideas? Sure. So one of the definitions that I like to use for meditation is that it's the intentional directing, conditioning, and unconditioning of the heart. And wow. I think that that is a great working definition to no matter where you come from, because if you're a Christian, for example, you're directing your heart towards God or towards Christ, and you're trying to acquire conditions of being more in harmony with the will of God, as you know Christians would express it. 
and you're letting go of the conditions of selfishness and, and disconnection and things like that. And as a Buddhist, it's more focused on particular principles than uh, a deity, so to speak. But those principles, I think, are still in in harmony with Christian belief. You know, the principles of patience and kindness and peacefulness and compassion, trying to direct my heart in a way that that aligns with those qualities and to release a lot of the same qualities that Christians are working to let go of and grow out of that are kind of, I guess you could say spiritually immature qualities like greed and selfishness and anger and things like that. And then even for people that are totally secular and don't really value spirituality, you can still direct your heart towards things that, you consider to be your own personal values, your own ideals, and work mm-hmm. towards that. One of the perspectives that I think is important that ties in with that is that as human beings, we are easily conditioned. We're adaptable. That's what we do as we adapt to situations. A lot of the time we're adapting to situations that are less than ideal, part of that adapting process happens without our intentional participation in it. And so meditation is really taking time to sit down and become a participant in the way that we become conditioned and letting go of ways that we've become conditioned. Josh, can you expound on that? Because As you know, I do an active, moving, guided meditation that's very spiritual-based. Well, you've actually experienced it. I actually didn't have the opportunity to jump in on one of your breathwork sessions. I really wanted to. Actually, to be honest, it was that was at the beginning of my meditation career, and I was afraid of the intensity that was there, especially while I was on shift. You know, it was like felt like something I wanted to do when it was more personal and private. At the time, I had a lot of struggles at the time that I was still working through. You had to get probably a very full mind. The mind is not as empty as it is now. Absolutely. I'll just point out one thing. I will say that I always tell people that Jim is like the most Zen guy that I know or have listened to or talked to. Sorry, Jim. I think, Mm -hmm. Josh, uh, the (laughs) calmness and just like the peacefulness and it's like your cadence and the way that you talk and everything is just so like, it's peace. I, I really do. Yeah. I can just like feel it and it sense really it. Is. The energy is uh, of peace and it's it's really cool. I know that I'm taking this as I need to probably get quiet uh, and do some more meditation more often. This is probably perfectly for me that the timing of this as my anxiety and my uh, stress has really flared up the last few months with work mm-hmm. and stress. So works out perfect timing. So like if I'm really trying to get started, Josh, what would you say? Like, what should I do? Usually, and Jim will probably agree with this, the breath is a a great place to start. So generally the way that I was taught was to start off just simply by observing when you're breathing in and observing when you're breathing out to stay aware, whether you're inhaling or exhaling. As we do that, A lot of people have this idea that we have to absolutely stop the mind from doing anything. We have to stop the thoughts. 
And that's not necessarily the case. What we want to do is shift the focus so that we can maintain the awareness of our inhale and exhale and become a little bit more detached from the thoughts so that they're not carrying us around as strongly. So we become an observer. We literally become an observer of our thoughts. Absolutely. Noticing the in and out breath is a starting point. And then there's some methods if the mind is really racing, like labeling the breath, simply saying in as you breathe in and out as you breathe out, or counting the breath helps as well. And so those are just some very foundational ways to teach your mind to stick with it, to stay aware and to not get dragged into the thoughts, not to get carried away or lost in, in the thinking. Awesome. Thank you. That helps a lot. So you're, you work in a treatment center and you do the mm-hmm. uh, alumni, which uh, as a guy that's went through treatment, I get, you know, um, I'm, I'm almost a little over two and a half years. So I still get like the quarterly reach out and text from, from them and things like that. What would you say is like one of the keys, or maybe not one of, but a few of the keys to success of people that, that continue to be successful and continue to stay sober and, and really have recovery? I've found that there's some good patterns, I think, that are very reliable. I think one of the first things is being able to model your recovery on people that are successful, to be able to make that a personal practice where you're not just doing it in a group, but you're taking it home. And you're integrating that recovery into your lifestyle. I found that people that are really successful take it that next step further in making it personal where they understand the principles behind what they've modeled and they learn to adapt it so that it suits their own needs a little bit more. And so I think that's really a common path towards mastery of anything is you need to find somebody that's modeling good practice. And then you kind of copycat that. And then once you get good at copycatting it and where it's familiar, then you start to make it your own. And so I think people sometimes try to skip those steps. Some people try to do it their own way right from the start. And they're not really open to guidance. And that can be really problematic. But I also find the opposite can be a problem where people become overly reliant on the guidance and they don't make it their own. If the people that have shown them the way don't have the same experiences or their life isn't going in the same direction, or if they falter in their recovery, then a person can lose touch with their own path in their recovery. And so that combination, I think of modeling and then customizing is a key point. I've never thought of it that way for me personally, but that's pretty much what I did through the 12 steps, but not just the 12 steps, people around me that I saw that they had what I wanted. So I emulated them. And now I kind of do things very similar to what they did, but kind of made them my own, like you said. And yeah, that's a really cool way, cool way to look at it. And I think that this just points out something we talk about all the time is how important it is to surround yourself with people that are doing the right things. If you're looking to get into recovery, somebody that has recovery that you want, putting yourself around them, kind of building that accountability and that recovery team around you is going to be such a huge part and a a huge indicator of the success that you're going to have. Absolutely. I think that social reinforcement is a factor that we tend to take for granted 
in developing new habits and breaking old habits. For me, when I first got sober, I was kind of one of these really rebellious types, overly individualistic, we could say. And I had this kind of John Wayne attitude that was like, I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to do my own thing. And I was really concerned that I didn't want it to seem like other people had undue influence on me. Everything I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted to be self-taught. I wanted to be a self-made man. I overlooked how much my people that I associated with and the friends I kept did have an influence on me. And what I found was that by choosing the type of habits and people and behavior I surround myself with, that's actually a better key to having control over my life is by choosing to be around people that demonstrate those values instead of thinking that I can just, through sheer willpower, create a lifestyle and then surround myself with people that have a completely contrary lifestyle. When did you realize that? I mean, that to me is a beautiful epiphany because I think there may be a lot of people out there who really want to do their recovery. And there is a small percentage of those people that are successful, but oftentimes that leads to relapse. When was your epiphany around that, that had you get, because what you just said was very eloquently spoken, but it's basically recovery as a team aspect. And when we attempt to do recovery alone, we suffer. And yet when you do it in a team environment, we succeed far more. Absolutely. So the question is, when when did I come to that realization? That's a hard question to answer because I think it was kind of a gradual process for me to realize that. There was uh, several different steps along the way where the pieces kind of came together. One was in my early recovery when I was trying to stay sober, mostly to stay out of jail because I was on probation at the time. My way of doing that was just through sheer willpower, and I was still hanging out with people that were drinking and using on a daily basis. I found that I was able to pull together days and weeks without drinking or using, but when it was always available every single day, I was in surrounded by it. Whenever there was that weak moment, it was like, boom, instantly. It's just right there, and it's so easy to cave in. That led me to what you were talking about a little bit earlier, to try to stay sober by isolating myself, by avoiding the situation. Ah. And that led to a lot of loneliness. Yes. Um, and so then I had to start seeking out friends that were trying to to create a happy life without substances and that we're doing that by engaging in spirituality and looking for meaning in their lives and supporting each other and, and really taking advantage of the beauty of life. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. I assume that strengthened your sobriety and you became, when did you, along that path, when did the Buddhism come into play? I started turning back to Buddhism pretty early on when I decided that spirituality was going to have to be one of the key elements in recovering. And that's a pretty common theme, I think, anywhere you go. Most 
programs, whether they're Buddhist-based or 12-step-based or uh, church-based or, you know, a lot of the recovery centers even really encourage people to discover a sense of spirituality. I had had some books on Buddhism that my mom had bought me when I was a teenager. And when I started thinking, oh, I'm going to have to get spiritual again and start exploring that, that was the first thing I did was take the few old Buddhism books off of the shelf and I opened them up. And there's kind of a funny story. There's a book by an author named Aya Kema. She's a nun, a Buddhist nun. And the title of the book is Being Nobody Going Nowhere. That was the first book that I took down off the shelf. And I looked at the title, of course, interpreting it from not seasoned Buddhist perspective. I thought, wow, that's a kind of a depressing title, Being Nobody Going Nowhere. It kind of struck a nerve with me because that's how I felt in my life at the time. I didn't feel like I was anybody and I didn't feel like I was going anywhere in my life. I opened up the book. Two pot leaves fell out of the book from a pot plant that I had tried to grow. (laughs) And I was like, oh, there's my sign. At the time, I was actually debating on whether I needed to quit smoking marijuana too or if I could just quit the hard stuff and keep doing that, you know, and it was like, oh, man. I'm going to be nobody and keep going nowhere if I don't totally quit everything. And because that felt like a sign to me, I decided to sit down and read the book. And Beautiful. that really kind of got the gears turning. And the second book that I pulled down off the shelf was the Dhammapada. And that became the book that I carried with me every day. I wouldn't leave without it. I had it on me all the time and I read it and I used it as kind of like a prayer book almost where I would read a few verses and, contemplate them and let them soak in and use them to kind of set an intention and things like that. And that's really where things got started for me. On that note, I think we're going to wrap this episode up. Josh, I want to thank you for being a guest on Sobriety Elevated. Josh, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us, Jim. It's always a pleasure to, uh, to spend an evening with you here on, uh, recording our podcast and every, everyone out there listening. We appreciate it. We hope that you found something of value today. I think, um, what I would say is if meditation scares you, give it a shot and just see what kind of uh, results that it can bring you in your life. If you like us, please share us with your friends. Please rate us and just tell as many people about us as you can. We also have a Facebook group called Sobriety Elevated. We'd love to connect with you guys there. We hope that everyone has a incredible day, as Jim likes to say, and we look forward to talking to you all soon. Thanks, everybody.